Welcome, friends, to Everyday Insights, where I catch up with valued colleagues and share their life learnings so we can all learn to live a little happier. Today's guest is my old friend, Glenn, now Austin Anderson. He's an Emmy-nominated documentarian who's done work for the BBC, Runner's World, Military.com, and a ton of other major networks. We met in high school and have a lot of shared memories from running and walking together on the track team. He's currently a professor of media and communication studies at Catholic University and is still actively producing films on his own and with his students. His recent documentary, Coogan's Way, is about the modern struggles of an Irish pub that was critical to the Dominican community of Washington Heights in the 80s and 90s. It's available on Vimeo On Demand. See the link in the description to check it out. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. If you enjoy this content, leave a comment letting me know which part was most interesting to you. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And with that, let's dive right in. All right. Well, welcome, Glenn. Thank you for joining. Or sorry, let's start over there. You can <laughs> call me Glenn. It's let's do it. Hey, let's do that. Hey, welcome, Glenn. Nice, nice to see you. It's been been so many years. Uh, what you been up to? So we went to high school together, and then I moved away after a few years and lived abroad. I made it back in time to watch you and your class graduate from Northport, and then I, I went back to high school, which was so weird. Yeah, I went to college at University of Pennsylvania. That, that last year of high school, I, it was kind of a weird one because I was training and racing full-time in the weirdest event in track and field, and I had a huge growth spurt and got a lot better. The mm. fact I was like older than everyone else probably contributed to that. Um, yeah, there's no redshirting rule or no... Uh... <laughs> redshirting in high school got a lot better because I always had these like great track and field desire. So I found my niche event and I had a good year. And then I went to college in Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania with like no idea what I was doing, completely and totally intimidated by all the really smart kids. I sort of stayed in my lane, but found a good academic niche eventually and decided to pursue graduate study in that in Hispanic studies and Latin American studies. Hmm, nice. Yeah. So kind of a weird thing, you know, especially when you're at like a school like UPenn, like future investment bankers, future doctors, future lawyers. And I'm like the Hispanic studies guy. So it was just like, it was a really good fit for me. So started looking for grad programs, thought I was going to go down the PhD track, got into a great grad program. There was a master's phase and then you reapply to go to the doctoral phase. I got into a doctoral program at a different university in the UK and I was all set to go. And quite literally on a dare from a friend, I applied to film school with zero mm. aspirations of getting in. Wow. Yeah. I had planned on staying in England for a long time. Done much film work at that point? Or what's, uh, you know, how did they let you in? Why did they say well, this? That's a good question. So within Hispanic studies, I was going to be looking at Spanish film in the post-Franco era. And that was what my sort of passion was looking at the, the, the rise of the Spanish film industry. And I said to myself my last year of college, well, if I'm going to be doing this kind of research, I might as well go learn some film things. So I took a screenwriting class. And I took a very intro to digital cinematography class mm -hmm. and I enjoyed it. I really liked working in the lab. I really liked the editing. And again, on a dare from one of my grad school classmates, I applied to film school and I got in. I got waitlisted at one, got into the other. And so after packing up my entire life and moving to England with the plan on staying through at least a PhD, I one year later packed all my stuff up and moved back. Wow, and that was quick. One year. Yeah, one year after all that work and time and disposition. So yeah, got my uh, I did get my master's phase in Hispanic studies from Oxford. My thesis was it was good. I mean, it was solid. I I certainly passed, but it was like 
you know, I didn't think the the PhD track was necessarily where I wanted to go. And I had this brewing passion for storytelling. So I get to the Tisch School at NYU, you know, first day of introductions, everyone's going around the room and everyone are all these like budding independent film type want to be Tarantino's, want to be Jim Jarmusch type characters. And, and I'm there like, I like news, documentary, sports. I reference my favorite directors as Danny Boyle and Bud Greenspan. Bud Greenspan's a sports documentarian. So from day one, I was always like a little bit on the outside. Yeah. Of like interesting. Your stereotypical crew. I thought I wanted to be an editor and I was just telling everybody I'm an editor. I'm just taking these directing classes because I have to blah, 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 blah. My first semester, incredibly challenging. Realized that I didn't love the environment as much as I thought I would. I thought about dropping out after a year and going to law school. I took the LSAT. I was like, I just didn't have a fit. Wow. My classmates were, they were all very nice. And some of them have had gone, gone on to have really great film careers, but we weren't doing what I was particularly passionate about. And then the second semester of my first year in film school and film school is pretty intense. It's competitive. It's your work's being evaluated constantly. It's just the industry in general, right, is a hit-driven industry. There's only a, a couple people that will make it out of that whole class. Or something oh, absolutely, like that. absolutely. Yeah. How many people were in your class then? There were 31 in my, in my first 31. year class. Okay. And I think two or three dropped out right before the term was over, and one unfortunately passed away in the second year. So oh, wow. it whittled down slowly. I actually took a two-year sabbatical, which is sort of what I'm going to get to next in the story. But that second semester in film school, we started doing documentary work. And all of a sudden... Uh, a light bulb went off. I was I studied under some amazing documentarians, uh, a guy named Tom Haneke, who has a wall full of Emmy Awards, Sam Pollard, who was Spike Lee's editor and also in his own right, an amazing documentarian, Rob Epstein, who has two Academy Awards, Carol Dysinger, who has an Academy Award. I got to study under these people and I just fell in love with nonfiction storytelling. And mm -hmm. I just loved it. And I loved getting a camera and getting people comfortable on camera and getting them to open up. And I sort of found my niche. So got through my second year of film school, which was completely focused on narrative filmmaking and no more documentary. And I was just miserable. But at the same time, I had a job working at a place, you know, the Armory. Yeah. Uh, I worked at what the Armory. What were you doing there? So I did my first year documentary in film school about a track coach at, the, at a high school in Harlem. And the folks at the Armory helped me get access and, uh, you know, shoot there. And one of their... VPs was like, do you want to come and take over our media ops and we can work around your class schedule? So I would work a 40 hour week, but I would work it at weird hours. So huh. it would be like Saturdays, 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. I would just jam in as many hours as I could, but yeah. I basically had a full-time job. What were you doing there? Like, what does that so entail? I was running the Jumbotron. I was producing all of their promotional films. I was making segments that they would send off to TV, doing commercial promo stuff. They had a big monitor in their lobby because it was sponsored at the time by New Balance. And I created a commercial for New Balance. Nice. All sorts of really great opportunities that came, but I was also balancing yeah. that with full-time film school and working in a subject area that, again, like I'd fallen in love with documentary. Then they kind of took that away from me. And I was like, back to narrative film. Made a terrible, terrible second year film just because I was not that invested in it. And then documentary style or, or narrative. Uh, style? No, no, it was, it was a narrative film. Yeah. Um, actually, you might not remember this, but he's a fairly famous painter now, not house painter, but like portrait painter, sure. a guy from Smithtown named Jason Bourbet. 
He ran. Oh, yeah, well, I know. I know Jason Bourbet. I don't know him as a painter at all. But yeah, yeah. yeah. He and I ended up living a block away from each other in New York. He wanted to be a budding actor. He was one of our rivals in, oh, uh, in the track team absolutely. back in back in high school. So we would always talk about him. And then I, I do remember this coming up a little bit through Facebook or something, seeing you like have this relationship with him, which was kind of okay. weird. It's like, oh, that's our we're really our close arch nemesis. <laughs> yeah, we we live like a block away from each other. In New York, we became really close friends. Like I put him in my movie. He worked with me on my thesis film. So we yeah. stayed really close. And anyway, that job at the Armory got me a sort of part-time job doing segments for Yes Network, the Yankees Entertainment and Sports Network, mm. which is a local cable affiliate for the Yankees. Basically, they would run these like local segments about running and triathlons and things like that during like rain delays and off hours when there were no games. And that's really um, neat getting to combine your background, your different passions together. What do you call oh, that when you stick all your pieces together for a nice career that you love? Yeah, it, it was an outlet to get me started. And this yeah. was by no means a lot of money, but it was fun. And proving to myself I could make a living in this area. So after two years of film school, my film school was two years, excuse me, three years of classes and then a thesis. I took two years off after my first two years. Worked on my thesis, which was a documentary about the Achilles Track Club, the disabled runners on the New York City Marathon. Hmm. Finished my, basically worked on my thesis, got a job doing some political media stuff with the former governor of New York. Got to travel around and like with him on like private jets and state aircraft and stuff, which was really fun. And then I got a job that I always wanted, basically, which was I was working in sports television. I worked for a company called CSTV, which had been recently acquired by CBS Sports. Hmm. And I became a college football field producer. But my assignment was not so much the game action as it was like tailgating and football culture and hanging out with the mascot for a day and all that sort of side stuff. And it was CSTV's first ever foray into direct-to-web content. And that was really cool and sort of springboarded my career. I did eventually go back to film school, finished my third year, turned in my thesis, graduated right into the 2008 recession. I had a job offer mm -hmm. at one of the, I won't say the company's name, but one of the big companies that makes documentaries in this world had a really nice offer waiting for me. And I had also looked into going into management for like the entertainment side. I had looked into going into agenting, but 2008 recession just threw everything out the window. So here I was, degree in hand, and I was still freelancing just like I was before. Along came Runner's World, which was a magazine I've been reading since I've been nine years old. And their video ops guy was in need of some help. And I started freelancing for them, started freelancing for a division of the Financial Times. Just started building like a really nice freelance portfolio. And that's what I did in New York for a few years after graduation. And the thing about freelancing is you you either you either have a really good run where you're making lots of money and you're doing mm. lots of great work or there's nothing. Yeah. And there's very little middle ground. Even so. in your same career maybe or that or do you th think it's more one person to person or is it more like I will have ups and downs of like it's busy time and everyone wants something and then it's dead time. I mean it's definitely cyclical for everybody like nobody really works that much in December but like I was either being booked three times a day or not working for two months. And it was like, there was no middle ground. There was no just like consistent work. And that's a hard way to sustain yourself. So I started applying for in-house producer jobs. 2009, I said, DC looks like the recession didn't hit as hard there, especially in the media industries. I came down here to work for the British newspaper, The Guardian. 
running their audio and video desk. And that was an absolute dream job. Traveled wow. around the country, around the Caribbean, did all sorts of really cool work, got to work with their print journalists to turn them into like video journalists and like just do it. I was able to co-produce with a guy named Jeff Jarvis, who's one of the most famous figures in media, just an amazing opportunity for a young journalist. And again, I have no formal training as a journalist at this point, And I'm working for one of the most prestigious newspapers in the world, working with these famous reporters. And I just sort of found this niche for myself. Amazing job. Unfortunately, like I think eight months after I got here, they shut down the bureau. And that's sort of like a recurring theme in working in the media industries is like, once you get going and you get momentum, like the economic realities take over your situation. So eventually, you know, working here, working there, I got to work doing military coverage, got to go to Afghanistan, report on, on the military. I really loved that. I did a little bit of- Pause real quick for one second yeah. on that on that last point. What's the difference? You, you know, you did go to Tish for three years yeah. and do all this- great training in film stuff. What's that journalism training that you think you were missing? So I caught up quickly, I think. You know, I didn't know, and I, and I teach journalism now. So, I mean, the, the basic skills of journalism aren't that hard. It's like one of those crafts where you learn the basic skills and then you spend your entire lifetime mastering them. But, you know, I was applying these documentary principles of like patient observation and active interviewing, interviewing people when they're doing things. Mm. And I, I sort of carved out a unique niche for myself and a unique style for myself because I wasn't a journalist by training. I was a documentarian by training. And different relationship you develop with the, the person you're working with. Then. Yeah, absolutely. The dynamic, I, I think probably my greatest strength as a producer of anything, whether it's news or documentary, is putting people at ease and getting them to talk and getting them to be candid. And, you know, I studied up on the other journalism things I felt like I was missing. The basic reporting, the formatting, the language. The I, I love reading style guides now and got myself caught up in that because I never really actually considered myself a great writer. What's I, a style I, guide in the journalism sense? You know, how to abbreviate things correctly, when to use British spelling, when to use uh, American spelling, you know, how to refer to someone on the second or third reference, things like that. Yeah, or lens stuff too, or is that, you know... Or the, the setup of a shot and how what kind of focus oh, I mean, that stuff, is that a lot more, part of it? That stuff you yeah. have a lot more creative freedom on. Yeah. And you can you can get a little weird and a little funky. And this was such like a nascent time for web video too, that there were no rules per se. So like you could do things that didn't look like traditional like stand-up news reporting, guy smiley on the scene. You could do things that were a little more inventive, like doing a news segment that was completely what we would call like cinema verite style, just observing what was happening and then you know, contextualizing with little title cards. And you couldn't get away with that on the five o'clock news. You can get away with that on world news tonight, but you could get away with it on the internet. So mm -hmm. yeah, a very cool space. And, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, I got to report on military medicine, which is an incredibly fascinating field, a little gruesome at times, but very captivating and very interesting. And I, and I did this sort of observational reporting. I really loved that aspect of it, but ultimately I, I left and the opportunity to work for the BBC came along a little bit of a desk job took a, quite a substantial salary hit. But when you're working in the media industries, there's a few gold standard companies and working for the BBC was sort of on that, that, that bucket list of like yeah. great places to work for. And like Is I said, I, it, is the pay cut like a war zone kind of thing too? Or is that a... No, no, no. You know, I actually you know. was a desk jockey at the BBC. So yeah, I was uh, just riding a desk and doing like for the first time. Well, that's time what I mean. Could... Like, is it a big switch where you were like getting oh, some yeah, hazard I mean, pay to now you're at a desk in... Yeah, I mean, that, hazard pay is a bit of a proverbial myth per se, but like, yeah. you know, most journals are jumping in opportunities to go into those like tough situations. Yeah. So 
But yeah, it was it was just that the BBC is not known for paying particularly well because it's kind of a privilege to work there. Oh. I think is the way to put it. But and it was, and I learned so much. I got to work with a global team. I managed a a, a team that had people in Singapore, London, and DC. I was out of the DC bureau, but I spent a lot of time in London. My producing partner, will, if he ever watches this, will be completely cringed, but we managed the journalism and the product side. So first thing we did was sort of videoify the BBC news Facebook pages, particularly the the World News Facebook page, which is since, since class, we had like exponential crazy growth. And then my producing partner and I, he amazing guy named Marco Zurich, he's still at the BBC. They handed us the keys to launch the BBC News YouTube channel which we started like day one, zero subscribers. And now I think they're in the tens of millions. So like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Marco and I were the, the founding editors and producers behind that. And BBC was also really flexible about the fact that I wanted to keep doing documentary work. So my managing editor here in DC, a woman named Claudia Milne, who's at CBS now, who I'm still very close with. She knew I was working on this documentary about a U.S. Army war widow who turned to marathon running to cope with her grief. Mm. And... She said, you know, it's a long shot that we'll acquire it, but let me see it. And then like, seriously, an hour after watching it, they, the BBC acquired my film. So it was like these, all these amazing opportunities came along. Ultimately, 2015 came along. I got married. Congrats. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Very patient, very kind woman. We moved in together and I went to Afghanistan like 48 hours later. And she's like, what, what oh, am man. I doing here? Uh, I got married in 2015 and, you know, we wanted to start a family and all that stuff. And the newsroom lifestyle and the hours were not particularly hospitable. And ultimately I, I had this terminal degree in hand. I had my NYU degree, which is, you know, the fine arts equivalent of a doctorate. And I wanted to put it to use. So after a few like fits and starts going to other news agencies, a lot of people like spend time, you know, working in the PR side of the house. And I just... I tried it, didn't really like it. I decided I'm going to go and try to pursue academia. And I started out as an adjunct while working for a documentary company. Eventually got a tenure track job at a small college in Virginia. That turned into a tenure track job. And I just got promoted to associate professor at Catholic University in DC, which is a small, but you know, national level research university. So, but the sort of like biggest career definer in and amongst all of this was I got to make a film that I really cared about. And it all comes back to the armory where you and I used to run. And <laughs> the bar right behind the armory was called Coogan's. It was an Irish pub and early 2018, their landlord, which was Columbia University's real estate arm, raised their rent. And I watched this from afar and was reading articles in the New York Times and articles on letsrun.com and postings about Coogan's going out of business. And losing their lease and everything. And I was like, somebody needs to go document this. And I had this like eureka moment. Why don't you go do it? Wow. You'd been there before during that time. Like, I, you know, back when I was at the armory yeah. in high school, we weren't going to the bar or we weren't thinking about yeah. hey, this. We would just go run and then get on the bus and go, go home pretty much. Right? It's a restaurant too. And what, yeah, when I was working at the armory, that was our after work place. Yeah, yeah. So I spent a lot of time and a lot of money there. Um, yeah, I was wondering how you found it or like how you knew anything yeah. about it. And and then I, oh, I saw that armory connection and I was like, oh, oh maybe yeah. it's will do that. And then, yeah, it goes a yeah, way, I was a way deeper. I was, I was friendly with one of the owners. They had a second bar briefly down in the Upper East Side. And I used to go to that too. So like, I just, I lived on the Upper East Side. So I, I you know, I just, I knew the place well. And, I, but I didn't know the whole story. So I thought I was going to do like a, 
eight minute segment and try to sell it to the BBC or try to sell it to maybe one of the New York media outlets. Um, and then three years later, I have a, a first feature documentary I ever directed because I just kept on getting more and more material and more and more people who wanted to talk to me. Hmm. And this little sort of pet project just kept on snowballing and snowballing. Wow. Almost um, had a life of its own because of the unique nature of that place, maybe. Uh, uh, yeah. The, the nature of the place, the number of people who wanted to talk about it, the, the sort of cultural impact, the societal impact it had on the neighborhood, the kindness, this palpable, tangible kindness of the owners. And lo and behold, I, I this idea, I, at first I said it was going to be like a TV segment. Then I said, it's going to be a short documentary, which means it would be under 40 minutes. By the time we premiered at the Harlem International Film Festival, we were at like 72 minutes. And I was like, I accidentally directed a feature documentary, called in a lot of favors, got a lot of friends to contribute. So our, our actual like cash output budget is about $21,000, $22,000. But our in-kind budget, people working for free or people working below union rate or lawyers, lots and lots of lawyers in the documentary world who would work pro bono. Mm. You know, my editor and post guy, he worked for just credits. He was a former student of mine. And we were like working nights and weekends on this. It's so our in-kind budget, I like to say, was about 100000 So $80,000 of goodwill up on that screen. Yeah. Wow. It was, and then what uh, about your time? Or how does that factor in? Is that I don't factor in my own time. <laughs> like that's got to be a that's yeah. one of the problems um, with all this art I stuff. Had to have my hours put in. I, 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 it's impossible, but I, I I don't think it would be unfair to say like twenty five hundred to three thousand hours of my time. Yeah, I, 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 if that's anything, intense. I think I underestimate. But uh, yeah, lo and behold, this uh, we got acquired by WNET, which is the PBS affiliate for New York, New Jersey, Long Island. Later on, Connecticut came into the mix and we aired it and we got our Natus New York Emmy nomination. My wife and I got to go to the ceremony. I'll send you a picture. We were you know, decked out tuxedos. And, yeah, congrats. And, uh, that's a, that's awesome. Just, yeah. yeah. So we didn't win, but I have a nice nominees plaque upstairs and I'm a member of, of the Academy now, so I get to vote. I actually voted on stuff last night. So I'm a voting member and like, here's like the interesting thing. And, you know, you talk in this podcast about like, success and goal setting and moving towards goals. Like it took leaving the normal ecosystem of TV for me to get to where I actually wanted to be. Wow. Weird. And yeah. And being in academia, I have the freedom to chase the projects I want to chase and put the time to that. And I should footnote this. Like I also love teaching. Teaching is an amazing, amazing thing. So I'm not one of those academics that has to do research per se. My creative output is my research. So I get to, you know, keep making films, keep working on projects I care about. I have something I never would have had time to do. I did an educational mini documentary series about history in Washington, D.C. that was bankrolled by the D.C. government. And I just loved this little quirky, weird project. And it's, you know, it's launching next week as like a resource guide for like middle school and high school kids to learn about history. Hmm. I never would have had that chance if I was working in network TV. So all these little fun things. I, I directed a football hype video last year because of my experience shooting in SEC football for or the CSTV. Like I hadn't been on a football field in a while and it just felt so at home and felt so good. So yeah, it's just, you know, getting to that point where you can pick and choose the stories you want to tell is really empowering. Very cool. One thing you made me think of was uh, editing into my stuff. Like, you know how like, 
in documentary style, something I've been thinking of for a while too, is sticking in pictures. Like it'd be great to uh-huh. find some picture of us out of the track field and or oh out of you in that football field and, and tie it in with this. I have, years I have later coming back. Fields. I got that Emmys picture with my with my with my wife. I will dig into the archive, see if I can find some old Northport High School pictures. But uh, yeah, yeah, I have like so few. It's a different time. Like when we grew up, it, it was not the easy cameras that there are now. I know I have like probably ten pictures of. I've got one of me and Bill Gerhardt sitting there and he's changing his sweatshirt. Or something. Like, if he's few and far between, like any kind of good picture. I, I mean, like the culture now is like, I've got my son. I, I have like more pictures of him from the last week than I have of my entire childhood, just because taking pictures back then was an expensive and time consuming proposition. And yeah. Like, my dad had a dark room in our basement and I say, and like, it's nothing compared to like what you can get on one of these puppies. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you have a whole editing suite and yeah. photo development and photo capture. Yeah. I really own instant. Yeah, and it's just it's a different age now. I mean, we we document everything. But I, I connected with Bill a few years ago. I actually when I first moved to academia and teaching full time, I actually called his dad and checked in with him. So yeah, it was as one yeah, of our I, our teaching mentors in a way that did. He was our track coach and yeah. uh, and more or something, right? He was a teacher at yeah. a different school and a disciplinarian and. I don't know, just a person we all looked up to because that's the role absolutely. of a high school kid. <laughs> Look up to their absolutely, coaches and teachers. Absolutely. I think I drove him a little crazy because my like ambitions were far beyond my talent level. And then when I did actually get good at an event, it was an event he hated. So it was like, <laughs> it was like, I don't know. And I started in the eighth grade on the, on the Northport high school team. And then I took a year of time off from school. So he was with me for like five, six years. So you know, it, it, it's quite a relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a great guy. Let's see what else did I have in there? So yeah. Take me through the process of how you do all this stuff. So you had the idea to go film at Coogan's. You must have a bunch of equipment or you just decide to go off and do it. How do you find time or do you have to go find money first or who's stopping you or telling you yes or no or any of this stuff? How does it work? So I have, uh, you know, I have access to great gear because I work at universities and I work in production departments. So the gear was never a uh, proverbial like hurdle to anything. And I am trained in how to use it and I teach students how to use it. So gear was never an issue. You know, I had to crew up and, you know, I had the people that I wanted to help me edit and the people I wanted to help me shoot. Old friend, uh, another Long Island guy named Greg McMahon helped me shoot the film. But like the biggest hurdle in documentary is getting people to sit down and talk with you. Mm. And once you get people to sit down and talk with you, getting them to be candid, getting them to be real on camera, as opposed to, you know, very stiff. Uh, 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 uh. No, you just want to get them <laughs> relaxed and you want to get them telling their story. And, and I think the biggest thing with Coogan's was I had to go and do research. I had to go do homework. Like, what is the story here? Like, I thought, hey, I love this bar. They had a rent hike. They fought back against it. And then COVID came along. That wasn't the story. The story was these Irish American guys go into a largely African American and Hispanic neighborhood and open up an Irish pub. And it becomes a community center because they're so welcoming to everybody. And all these various different communities found a home here, blah, 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 blah. So I needed that first act where everybody got invested in this place to make that later part of the story, that second and third act, have any sort of impact. And this is what I did in To Remember, which was the U.S. Army War Widow documentary. It's what I did with my thesis documentary. You just need to like have all of these pre-interviews and really get a sense of what your narrative line is going to be and then start outreach. Now, this was the first time I've done like 
a traditional archive-driven sit-down style documentary. Most of my work has been highly observational, just watching people do their thing. That cinema verite aspect, and I knew this was going to be a different film. So it was sort of like nine different jobs I had to do at any given time. One of the big ones was getting archive material, making sure I was legally cleared to use the archive material. If I'm going to borrow material, making sure that I can make what's called a fair use case in order to take that material. Mm. All of that. So I accumulated archive assets. Then if you're going to have lots of archive assets, you better have some good interviews. So I needed to talk to people. And it basically seemed like every time I reached out to someone, they told me more people to talk to and more people to talk to. Both great and annoying. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And like, I mean, there's an entire subplot of that film that I didn't have time to develop about how important it was to the track and field world. Mm. And I have interviews with like five Olympic gold medalists and a world championships gold medalist that I didn't use. Dan O'Brien, Ryan Krauser, Joe Kovacs. I have all of them interviewed and I didn't use it. Wow. Yeah. I saw one shot in there that was, uh, Coogan's had a, a banner up saying like the number one bar for runners or something. And, yeah. and you don't really cover the running connection too much at all. You mentioned the armory and these things, but yeah, there's, there was a base. So a I had this whole, like, <laughs> there's actually a scene where Tess, one of the owners is talking about how it's a real family atmosphere. And I got a guy like jiggling his baby, walking through a buffet line. It's Nick Willis. Who's like a two-time Olympic silver medalist. And I'm like, <laughs> Okay. I don't think Nicholas knows that I, that he's in the film, but maybe I need to send it to him. But like, it, it really is. So I had this whole subplot I didn't even get to use just because I had so many interviews. And that was like a first for me that, that people were so willing and desperate to talk about this place. So Rob Snyder, who's an academic who studied Washington Heights, but also a regular at the bar, all of these New York City detectives who used to hang out there. The guy who was like, has his own little local blog. He was one of my favorites, Led Black. And his candor, he was the guy like sipping wine in the back room and you can see everybody behind him. He was the one who used the line like Washington Heights is Dominican Disneyland. I I love that guy. And it's just like you get all of these people and you just kept on getting more and more people talking about the place. Famous politicians. I got Charlie Rangel in there. I shot in his home. Charlie Rangel was in Congress for like 30 years um, Lin-Manuel's father, Luis Miranda, who is famous in his own right as a political consultant. Also, like in accumulating those archive assets, I had to ask Lin-Manuel's management for permission to have him singing in a film. Mm. In 2018, he sang in two films. One was my low-budget documentary, <laughs> and the other was Larry Poppins. So, yeah. That's and his, I, I will say this to anyone who ever asked, every time I have a speaking event about Coogan's Way, every time I do a Q&A about it, his people, you know, I didn't interact with him directly, but are the kindest, nicest people in media. Wow. Hands down, like... Whatever impression he gives out in the world of being a kind, nice, generous guy, it is true. Like they covered the legal cost of drafting up that paperwork. They didn't ask me for licensing fees. Just amazing people. So yeah, but yeah, that could have know, been sticky to the licensing fees part. That could have been just like, oh yeah, we just want this little thing, you know, or this is exactly. our standard, and and then you have a lot oh, yeah. of red tape to deal with. Been a mess, but forever. They were so unbelievably kind. And then lo and behold, Peter Walsh, one of our main subjects of the documentary just casually mentions that the actor Jared Harris from Mad Men and Mobius and Sherlock Holmes is like one of his closest friends. And I'm like, so Jared Harris ends up doing an interview with us and ends up doing our little bit of narration at the end. And it's like, you know, I I consider myself friendly with him now. He's a really nice guy and his wife who helps like manage his career. They're really nice. Like I have them on my phone. I'm like, what world am I walking into that, that, that like I have Lin-Manuel Miranda's ma- management company and Jared Harris on my cell phone. I'm like, I wanted to tell a story about a little bar that I liked. 
but they were both regulars and, and loved the place. So, I mean, it just sort of snowballed. But yeah, we have some, what I would call like active interviewing, people walking around, demonstrating things, talking about things. But this was more like traditional sit-down interviewing. You put lights on, you sit someone down and you ask them questions. So, And you were fulfilling order- a lot of roles in that, or I guess I didn't scan the, the whole uh, credits at the end, but when you'd actually go to do one of those shoots, how many people did you bring? Usually two. Yeah. So it's like, so you got to set up those lights, run the cameras, run audio. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I would usually bring people with me and, or I, some, some of them I had to do on my own just because of availability and budget. Yeah. I'm not the world's greatest camera operator. I'm very good at shooting like verite scenes, but like sit down interviews and how precise they look. I'm not the greatest in the world at that. You know, I'm more of the like conversational storyteller type, but you know, skeleton crew, <clears throat> limited budget. But you know, when you turn on a light, people's ability to be candid and ability to, I don't want to say truthful, but to give you good material, it gets kind of limited. Like having a three point lighting scheme in front of you is kind of intimidating. Yeah. And, Unless and you, you know, know you're, to... there's something real going on or the, <laughs> that you're, exactly. you're being exactly. filmed. So my first job was to put everybody at, at ease, asking those basic questions just to, to, to get them to the point where I could get those really good sound bites. Cause at the end of the day, what the film is, is like 22 people. That's the number of interviews that appeared in the final version, 22 people stringing along one long narrative, soundbite by soundbite by soundbite. Mm-hmm. And then you fill it in with all sorts of fun B-roll and a couple of verite sequences, and that's the movie. You know, just like I said about journalism, those essential skills are are basic, but it takes a lifetime to master them. And, you know, I, I think we did a good job. There, there are places, like technical places, where, like, I'm like, oh, the focus is a little soft there, and it makes me cringe, or, oh, that color correction, or what was I thinking there with that framing, or... Things of that nature that that I just look at are, oh, I should have repositioned the mic a little bit. And most people don't even notice them, but they're going to haunt me for the rest of my life. But <laughs> Right. That's all yeah. the learning you do that gets better in the exactly. next one, right? Or- exactly. And then, like, you know, some of my, I was so exhausted by the time I came to soundtrack the thing that, like, I was throwing in music clips that made no sense. And, like, I, I submitted it for a bunch of awards, award panels in the academic world. And someone was like, this is a great film. Some very bizarre music choices. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) very fair criticism. Um, Well, I have a great friend who is a composer and works in film. He works in video games, but film is probably where he does more stuff that I would love to lead you up with. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a guy I work with a lot who wrote that sort of like theme that keeps on recurring. But like, you know, we needed to find like bachata music when we're talking about the Dominican culture. We needed to find Irish music when we're talking about the Irish culture. So it was definitely like an interesting experience. But ultimately, we we got the film into film festivals. And, you know, the big boys are almost impossible to get into with a feature documentary. The mm. Tribeca's and the Berlinale's and the, you know, Sundance. So we aimed a little bit lower and we world premiered at the Harlem Film Festival. And it, it was like the first film festival in New York in late COVID. So we could have sold out the 300 person theater in Harlem, but at the magic Johnson theater, but we were only allowed to like yeah. 80. Yeah. Yeah. So the tickets were at a premium. It was kind of like killer be killed for tickets. <laughs> so like, it was great. We won the audience award and then we took it to, we took it to some bigger film festivals too. We took it to a Newport beach in California. It got a great reception there. And it was, it, you know, sort of living that filmmaker dream of like, torn around with your humble wares getting trying to find an audience yeah how does the money part work from there so we started out with like you had access to equipment you knew some people i'd love to maybe dig into that of like 
yeah. how do you find those people? But like you said, the big problem was getting access to the interviews. So then you go on, you've made the film, you've edited it together, you spent a lot of time doing that, I bet. And then now how does the money piece play in? Do you do you need uh, backing then or do you not care? Yeah, you do. And, and, you know, mercifully, I worked for two different universities while I was out there promoting this and putting this out there. And they contributed a lot to like, you know, making sure I could go to California to promote my film. Like, you know, our biggest audience and the best reaction we got was Australia, mm. the Melbourne document, international documentary film festival. And I've just been invited to become a judge at that one. Now it's, it's a big deal festival and they loved us. Australia was still closed off because of COVID, but I did like two in the morning interviews over the internet, like promoting this thing in Australia. And it was just like crazy that that's where like it most connected. Um, mm. And, you know, it was just amazing experience. Expensive. The universities that I worked for helped a lot. You know, I racked up a lot of credit card frequent flyer miles making the thing, and I applied them to traveling. Wow. So that's so, really, uh, yeah, it's scraping it together in a lot of ways. It's That's a lot of personal dedication and risk and, oh, yeah. and work. Yeah. Impressive. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I'm proud of it. And, you know, even like entering the Emmys is no small commitment. Like, we had to buy a ticket and like between my wife and I, that was like $1,200 and then got to get a hotel in New York. You, you got to get geared up. So like even going to the Emmys, that, that was like a $3,000 proposition just off the, yeah. you know, on top of everything else we did. So it was just like a lot. How do you measure success of these different things? You know, of any of these projects you do, including this one then like, so getting the nomination for that for the New York Emmy was, was amazing, right? That's a, definitely a, a clear success piece, but you know, what else, what else do you need? For me, it's when people have seen the film and go out of their way to tell me they liked it and that it had impact. Mm -hmm. I don't obsess on like reviews, but the reviews I've gotten have almost always been very effusive, but too, too kind, if anything. You know, getting into the film festivals, there's sort of an adrenaline rush like that. I imagine it, it's like applying to college. Like, oh, did I get in? No, I didn't get in. But I got into this one, you know, like all of that stuff. And it, and it, it's fun. I have a weird gauge of success with Coogan's Way. One of the major plot points in the film is that the, the, the people who supported the community in the community who supported the bar wanted to get the street name changed. Yeah. And I have a copy of a New York City street sign upstairs they changed the name of 169th broadway to coogan's way yeah that's cool um i mean that's a pretty cool gauge of success i mean not many people get to be on a new york city road map so <laughs> yeah yeah and that was you'd already named the film at that point <laughs> yeah i had it's it's a chicken and the egg scenario yeah. at that point like did coogan's way come from the the and and in reality they had brainstormed the name for the street yeah, yeah. when i co-opted it for the film but like you know, after the the street renaming, they had a reception at, at the Armory, and they played my film on the Jumbotron, like, while this reception was going on. And I'm like, what world am I in? Oh. Like, it, 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 it's just amazing. And, you know, it shows the impact that storytelling can have. That's really neat. Yeah. And so none of those were about money, really, right? Like, wasn't like you made this thing and you had this goal to sell it and I want to make 2x profit or anything. Like, how yeah. does that factor in for anyone? Or is that a... I uh, a thing with I mean, documentaries or different kinds of film or yeah. How do you, I mean, do films, you I mean, I, I've done other stuff. I mean, I, I, I did a Santa Claus movie for Netflix as a, as a co-producer, co-exec producer. And you know, the, the, there's time to like do things for educational value for my students. There's time to do things where, yes, I do projects for money. There's plenty of projects I do for money. Yeah. And, but something like Coogan's way, I, 
you know, my time put in will never be fully compensated, but like I didn't hemorrhage or lose any real money on it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about like indie film projects is a lot of them lose money. Most of them lose money, especially in the nonfiction universe. It's very rare that films can make money or even break even. And because I funded it through grants and funded it through university funds and a few private donations who really cared about the subject, you know, there was not that big a dent on my personal wallet. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because I mean, you know, as I exit my regular career and do all this, this work for creating this podcast and, or other art projects I've done in the past that don't really necessarily break even or make any money. Uh, Yeah. Just how to define success for me has always been a a question mark. I I don't know if people listening out there uh, have similar thoughts or, you know, of course it'd be great if they leave a comment and tell me, but, uh, but yeah, it seems like an issue of doing these things that you don't think you're going to make money and then balancing out with, of course you got to pay the bills. You got to, that's really the beauty part of being in academia for me not only do i love the teaching i love engaging with my students we just had our annual student film festival on thursday night and it was amazing to to see my students films um but also like i have the freedom to chase pies in the sky like this and in fact i'm encouraged to do it it's really neat that yeah you don't have to publish like research papers but if you're publishing film that's what's going to count probably right yeah. And that, that's, you know, on my promotion and tenure track, that's what they look at. Like I did a Santa Claus film for Netflix that, that ended up on Netflix. Oh, perfect. Uh, yeah. I, did, I did a documentary that played on PBS. I did a, I consulted on a national commercial for Meta. I did this, all these other things. And like, that's what I'm judged on. So as long as I keep working this DC history documentary, I'm very excited about that. Cause that's, kind of an area I've never really delved into like educational documentaries for high school and middle school kids to learn about history. It just seemed fun. So, you know, one of the beauty parts of like making your living with a camera or making your living in a creative pursuit is you never really know where you're going to end up. You know, I've been in Afghanistan. I've been on college football fields. I've been in, you know, I interviewed Charlie Rangel in his house. I've done all of these crazy things, but you know, cumulatively it makes for a really interesting life. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next? How do you take that, that perspective of like, yeah, you created this first feature length documentary that was kind of your goal for a long time. You're, you're like hidden goal that you never could quite get to. And now you probably want to grow it out into more. How are you going to manage your future? It was such a huge financial, personal, academic, emotional investment that I want to do something a little more intimate this time. And I want to get back a little bit to my roots of being an observational filmmaker, as opposed to like, a an interview to sit down interview driven and i have a few projects brewing you know obviously i have that little educational documentary that i'm very personally excited to get out and start promoting and you know seeing it put into play but beyond that i have a project that's very early phase i am reluctant to talk about it because way too often it, since coogan's way has been completed and promoted and etc cetera, etc cetera, i've had like two false starts already on projects where oh yeah, I'm doing this. And then the financing falls through and yeah. then, or I'm doing yeah. this. And then the main subject goes, I am pretty confident. I'm going to be doing a sports documentary um, about a very interesting team. I'm shooting it locally in DC so I can cut down on the travel. That was one of the biggest things with Coogan's way is I was up there like once, twice a month, every month. And you know, that ta- that's time away from my son. That's time away from my family. That's, you know, it, that adds to expense. If I didn't have 
multiple couches to surf on that that adds an expense big time yeah my previous film i made in seattle and lived in dc so i just back and forth back and forth so making it in dc about a very unique sports team facing some very cool obstacles that they had some very challenging obstacles in a very cool way it's going to be verite it's going to be observational in nature and i'm pretty excited about it. and I'm, the big thing is i'm going to get my students involved both former and current students are going to be credited on that very high level and i'm not just doing it for the free or cheap labor i'm doing it because as an academic i, I think it's part of my job is to like give them real work yeah. So very, I'm excited about it, but not quite ready to talk about it. So yeah, no, and I'm not trying to get into any details. Yeah, I think yeah, it's no more worries, interesting no to see how, or not more interesting, but it's also interesting to see how you choose that process. Like, yeah. what do you look for in a next project? And, and I think you said one of the key measures of success there is, while it'd be easy to say, I'm doing this for the free labor, I'm going to, but the, the better version is like, it's my job to help teach these kids. And I, I, I meet people that I, I want to help. I want to put them in, in yeah. a, a space to learn something new and try this new thing. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, like, you know, there's a lot of people who are in professional fields. I see it a lot in journalism, but you also see it a lot in business who are like, yeah, I'm retiring to academia. And for me, like academia was always kind of the goal. I wanted it to be tenure tracked before I turned 40. Cause I did want to work in industry and that was incredibly important to me that like I have good tangible industry experience mm. and I wanted to stay like keep my toes in industry like I'm still on the freelance rosters for military.com and the BBC and other places but moreover beyond that I you know academia is this amazing space where you can be creative and your your primary responsibility is you bring in your students and get them excited about the field that you're teaching so you know, and that's the cool part about teaching in a pragmatic field as opposed to a, like a research-based or a humanities-based, a traditional humanities-based field. Like my color correction and editing guy is, when I was an adjunct at James Madison, he was one of my students and I noticed he was really talented. And after he finished my class, I was like, let's you and I stay in touch. And, you know, we have this mentor-mentee relationship and he's now like a professional commercial producer and he just did his first like medium form to short form documentary. And I just beam with pride at how successful he's been. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, because, yeah. And you identify that like, you know, an adjunct teaching a Friday morning film class, you were like, you are talented. You should stay with this. And that, that's a pretty cool feeling. And, you know, last year I sent two students to work at Bloomberg, one to work at NBC universal. One's working at discovery I've got, I think, two now working up on the internal media network for Capitol Hill. Like, um, you get quite a network that way too, as all the uh, over time or like ten years from now, as all these people you've taught in the past move on through their careers. Like, yeah, you'll know people are. A weird thing happened. Like next Saturday, I'm on a journalism careers panel with one of my former students as one of the other panelists. Mm. Wow, that's like, when did this happen? Like, (laughs) so you know, I've really only been in academia for this is my. Sixth year full time, seventh year total because I was an adjunct before I went full time, and uh, I have students. Part one of my other passions is obviously sports video production. I have students on staff at Vanderbilt football, UVA football, the Cincinnati Bengals. I have another one going to the sports media program at Wake Forest this year, and I'm like, man, these people that I got to teach have the dream jobs I wanted at 22, 23. So it's like, 
you know, the, that's the impact you can have on their lives. You, you can tell them that there are careers here. And if you work towards them, you can get them. Wow. Yeah. All right. So yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the, the style of filming you try to do or the different ways you can put media out there these days, right? A lot of the stuff you've done has been this kind of traditional sales approach or, you know, creation and trying to get it on onto TV or to, uh, you did a lot of web work in the past. And then now there's a lot of documentaries, a lot of uh, creative stuff that's just going out on YouTube or people are finding different ways to both distribute and monetize all this kind of content. So what do you think is the difference or why do one or the other and what's your goal for the future? This is a really great question, Ian. You, you are like hitting the nail on the head. Like what, what is the ecosystem? I mean, making a film, taking it to film festivals, getting the attention of a bunch of PBS affiliates, making a deal with them to put it on and, and you know, hopefully people watch and maybe you collect a trophy or two. That is the tried and true path, especially in nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And I love that path. At the same time, I was there very early days of like direct to web programming. And I still love that path too. You know, the YouTuber generation, I respect the heck out of them. And I love what they're putting out there. And I love their ability to monetize. You know, I use Daily Grace and Hannah Hart, who did My Drunk Kitchen, which I thought was such a great concept for a show. I, I saw the two of them at a YouTube conference like in 2013, and I was so impressed with them. But you get somebody like Mr. Beast, who, you know, during the Super Bowl, he said they're paying $5 million for 30 seconds of airtime during the Super Bowl. My audience on any given week is $100 million. Or he said something along those lines. And he's right. And they do make great content. Um, on the documentary not, front, I've seen a lot of stupid little, not stupid, but, you know, little tiny channels making a documentary about a tiny little thing, you know, some airplane or yeah. some uh, thing, something they know about. They're just, and, or they're cranking yeah. them out on one particular topic, you know? And, and I'm not precious about like the film festival route or anything like that. I think it's great. The more great nonfiction that's being told out there, the better. What I am excited about is I have my deal with these PBS affiliates is I can still promote the film and sell the film. And so that's something I've never done online before on my own. You know, BBC had my film and it, it was a BBC film and went out into the world that way. And my thesis documentary, we made it episodic and partnered with a company called Mile Split and it was able to be seen by an audience. And I consider those to be, you know, success milestones. But for the first time ever, I'm, I put something out on Vimeo On Demand. I put Coogan's Way out Vimeo On Demand. I waited about a year since my first broadcast on WNET and uh, you know, the sales aren't great, but it's, it's cool to play in the space. I, I get excited yeah. every time I ring up a sale. There's we'll put a link in the description or something on this. Yeah. Oh, I would love that. I yeah, would love course. that. Thank you. It's just a different ecosystem now. And I think there's room for all of it. There's time and space for sitting down on a theater at a film festival and watching a documentary. There's time and space to watch a documentary on PBS. That's an hour long. That's 55 minutes long. Like the TV cut of Coogan's way. There's also time and space to watch a two minute mini documentary about how to make cheese. There, you know, yeah. I'm utterly fascinated by how epoxy is used in woodworking. I know that's really esoteric. There's like 19 YouTube channels that describe yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's something I would like to do someday. So, like, yeah, one of my favorites here, Blacktail Studios, he's here in uh, Portland, one of yeah. everyone's favorites or something. But yeah, there's uh, a lot of epoxy woodworking out there for sure. Oh, yeah, exactly. And like, there's room for all of these things. I, I don't think it's one or the other anymore. I don't think it's like 
the YouTubers have taken over and the traditional documentarians are out the door. Like most of my issues are probably with traditional documentarians. Like I love Ken Burns content, but like no one else can get a documentary on national PBS because he sucks up all the air. (laughs) There are other filmmakers, you know, but yeah, I think just the more nonfiction content people are consuming. Now with that said, I resent and hate when people just do low quality stuff. And don't put the effort in to make stuff look good, sound good, feel good. Don't follow thorough narrative lines. That's just weak sauce to me. Like, But if you're putting in the effort and telling a story, you don't need to have gone to the Tisch School. You don't need to have like won Sundance. Like, There's great storytellers everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and do you think the, the mechanisms of streaming media sort that stuff out? Or is it, you know, the new shorts economy, the TikToks and YouTube shorts and all that stuff that Blows it up. I think it remains to be seen. I I think it's a very like sort of nebulous space and, and it's constantly changing and evolving. And once we think we have it figured out, we don't. So I, to answer your question, I'm just excited for whatever comes next. Is that VR? Is that who can generate the best AI film by cool descriptions? Like, I'm just excited for whatever's next. And the one thing I've learned is that this digital distribution space has surprised me every 18 months to two years already and these 20 some odd years I've been working in this. I'm just excited for what's next. Yeah. The short zone, actually, I should poke on that a little more. Uh, the standard kind of nowadays is you just read a headline or you know, the video version of that is you just watch a short. You have a feed of shorts and maybe you catch some news that way. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, exactly. Yeah. I think there's just a whole great community of storytellers and, and we shouldn't attach like, this overarching snobbery value to it. I, I I'm happy to see any story. And you know, yeah. if people reach out to me and say, Hey, I'm working on this short form documentary. I, I'm just excited about that as my buddy who has a, who has a film on national PBS right now about Olympia Dukakis, like, you know, filmmaking has become democratized and sort of my job as an academic is to teach you the, the basics of storytelling and the basics of the technology so that you can be part of that system. Yeah. Maybe you should be mining all your, like before we started, you told me that your ratio of filming for Coogan's Way, right? Would you say it was 30 to one? It was not 30 to one. Yeah. Mostly because I had a lot of archive footage mm-hmm. and sort of figuring out what, what I wanted and like interviews can go very, very long and they can get really in the weeds. Do you think it's um, worth the time to mine through all that to like pick out 20 second clips that you'd be like, oh, this is interesting. Make a short and then put a link to yeah. whatever else your stuff, or is it, you want, do you want to stick with the, you, you film it once and you, you cut it, cut an hour and you're kind of done. Yeah. It, I think, it, I think it all depends. I, I wish I still had it up because it, it looked like, a, you know, the, the shed from a beautiful mind, but like I, I, I do transcripts of all of my interviews. Mm. Then when I find a good soundbite, I cut it out, tape it on the wall. Oh, physically, physically do this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it used to be like, right, this is my basement and we have a little guest suite down here. And this is where I taught all my classes during the pandemic and all that stuff. But like right outside, it literally covered like 40 to 50 feet of the wall of just mapping out my stories by sound bite by sound wow. bite from the transcript. My wife thinks I'm insane, but it, it worked. And that, that's how you do the storytelling. Now, could I have done like short bits and still have told the story? I just think, I think Coogan's Way was, it was meant to be a feature. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, mining through content. I mean, you're going to do an edit on this. Editing's hard. Like, what do you keep in? What do you, you keep out? How do you make something tight enough and succinct enough that, that that it's a worthwhile story? 
Yeah, I'd love to get any editing tips you have. One question I have about that sometimes is, you know, I film this as a, a single flow, and then maybe I ask them some questions towards the end about something we referenced at the beginning. It's like, I could cut that out and slide it forward, or but then maybe the flow yeah. is weird. Or how do you, do you ever end up doing that in the interviews, or do you end up oh, it yeah. being more linear? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. You, sound bites, you gotta, I, I started to treat sound bites as their own little universe. And you go hunting for that moment at the end of a sentence where you can cut and then put a little B-roll over the cut. Yeah. I'm going to sound bite from later or earlier or whatever. And it's all about flow. Um, it's one of the so major yeah. differences I think between the, the work you're doing versus what I'm attempting here is, uh, yeah, you're not attempting. Right? You're doing <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You're out there. Doing it. You know, there's no attempting in storytelling here. Either doing it or you're not. All right. And you're doing thank it. Thank you, Glenn. Now. All right. Thank you. Oh, Austin, I guess. Yeah, we didn't cover that earlier. That's right. Your, your name yeah, change. Yeah. <laughs> your showbiz name yeah, change. Uh, the name change. I've okay. always loved my middle name a lot. And it's it's Norwegian. My father's family is Norwegian. And I always preferred my middle name. I never really lo loved Glenn. For certain areas of my life, everybody called me Glenn. When I went to college, I had a nickname. and like 60, 70% of people just called me that nickname. But so hopefully when I got one you liked. But... <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It was my initials, Gawa. Everybody called me Gawa. And I just, I loved having the nickname and I responded to it. And then when I realized in the professional journalism space, there were other Glenn Andersons, I was like, this is my opportunity to take my name and yeah. like basically flip it. So I leave Glenn up there because there's people who, who know me as Glenn. But I usually, and there's people who know me as Austin, so I kind of go by both. Yeah. And uh, and professionally, I go by Glenn Austin, so everybody can recognize me. Yeah. And it's not a middle name anymore. I got it flipped that it is a two-word first name. So. Oh. Huh. Changed it on my social security card. Changed it on everything. So it's it works for me, and I'm very proud of my Norwegian heritage, and I, I get to carry it with me now. Yeah, and I hadn't thought of it being actually probably the same name as as Austin A U S T. Yeah, yeah that's a, a different spelling, and yours is is O, but it's a weird O, right? It's a, some kind of yeah, it's the O with the cross through it. Yeah. Yeah. So. How does one type that? Is that like Control um, Zero One Nine Four um, or something? <laughs> option Option Shift O. <laughs> option Shift O. That's cool. Yeah. So I've, I've gotten, I got that keystroke down pat. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, the, the funny part is OST without the cross through it, just OST is, um, cheese. Oh, okay. So I, I'm pretty militant about the cross through my O. Nice. So <laughs> <laughs> otherwise you're, you're cheese. Be, yeah. I don't want to be the, the cheese man. So earlier you mentioned, uh, you started talking about a little bit, but that the influence of AI that could have on, uh, documentaries and on this kind of filmmaking. I wonder, yeah, maybe you could go into that a little more of like, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I, I try to talk about this a lot with everybody of how AI is going to impact their particular field. This is a, an interesting and a weird one that everyone can both see happening and people are using right now, taking ChatGPT, creating scripts for videos, then using an AI voice to read them and spitting them out. And you can just do that all day. And it's kind of this junk content or yeah, I mean, I think AI, like anything, you you know, the way I teach film and television history is that I talk about technology comes along, technology gets adopted by the industry or users or independent users, and that makes the storytelling evolve. And I think this is no different than that. This is a technology. Everyone's excited about it or potentially fearful about it or whatever it might be right now or or 
they think this is the most amazing thing ever. I actually know of TV networks that are now writing their broadcast scripts on AI, but on chat GPT, I should say. But the other side of the coin is, I think as the sort of opportunities to where this will be most helpful come along, it'll get applied to that and everything will sort of normalize and it, it'll stop being part of the conversation. It'll be just another tool in your toolbox. Where have I used it? Podcast.adobe.com has the new voice enhancement. That's going to really help sound correction on films. Mm. It's excellent. I've already used it. I've gone back and scrubbed old things just to test its limitations, and it's awesome. Oh, that sounds cool. I use uh, Descript, which has this studio yeah. sound enhancer, um, which I wonder if it's doing similar things. I'll also check out this Adobe version of yeah. it. Sounds neat. Yeah, and it looks cool. It sounds cool. It processes it quickly. A couple of my students had some, you know, student films often have rough audio because the audio is one of the harder things to master. Before our student film festival, a couple of them processed their sound through that, and it sounded really good. So, hey, that's a great AI tool that's going to be part of the, my workflow from now mm. on. I think AI is going to help with color correction. I think AI is going to find its way with, like, you know, I'm in a constant fight, like a lot of nonfiction filmmakers with that image is good, but it's a little soft. I think it's going to be able to like, you know, refine images, make soft focus, stronger focused. I think those sort of effect tool panels and Adobe Premiere or DaVinci are going to become more automated. That's where I see AI going. I don't necessarily see AI like full on making tangible content quite yet. And I don't think the art of good writing is necessarily dead yet. Mm -hmm. I think it, it, uh, it might be, you know, we might see some animations that are hundred percent AI, but I, I think actors will still have jobs. I think documentarians, particularly nonfiction storytellers across the board are still going to have a job because AI can't go out and interview a person and get candor and get really good sound bites and, Maybe it can help you edit that, but it can't go out and, and do that legwork of the documentary. Maybe it can someday, and it's a robot walking around interviewing people. But in the meanwhile, you know, let's use it as a tool to help us be better at what we do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I can see a lot of those things you're saying of uh, documentary style stuff could have a little bit of a moat where yeah. the, the interview part is still a valuable piece. I, want, exactly, I wonder if you exactly. could write a little agent to go scrape b-roll scrape stuff and then piece together piece together the whole thing <laughs> without you but not every documentary just some you'd be able to please say yeah some. the biggest that would be like we still have the legal standards of fair use mm. we still have to pay for archive footage we still have to credit so like there's like a lot of practical hurdles in the way mm. and legal hurdles in the way of just like hey ai make me a montage sequence of the drug crisis in Washington Heights in the 1980s. They can go do that, but I don't own that footage. Yeah. yeah if it can um, find it and everything too, like watching your film, there's definitely a lot of stuff there that, well, there was some that was news footage, which I don't know. That's, that's probably not necessarily digitized. Where did you find that? Like, like a bunch of grainy, you know, oh VHS looking so stuff. Right? Old VHSs calling up newsrooms, asking for things. There was the, the greatest resource out there, Getty Images. They originally quoted me like 11 grand for a one-year license, but they heard about the project. You see, th this is a perfect example of just like how loved this place was. I told them about the project. I told them it was academic in nature. I told them, I'm a professor. You have amazing footage that I'd like to use, but I could never afford it. They gave me a 90% discount and an unlimited license. And I'm like, people wow. are willing to help if you like 
make a good case. So we used Getty. Sometimes, man, scrubbing old, good old YouTube. Yeah. There was a blogger in Washington Heights who had raw video of the that he somehow or another got from the NYPD video unit. And I ran it by a lawyer and he said, if the NYPD video unit shot it, you can take it and do what you want with it. That's public domain. So there's all sorts of like hodgepodge of things. Yeah, scraping YouTube, but you better make sure that you have legal clearance to do that. Yeah. And the, the, the and fair use is a, is a complicated thing to understand. Yeah, so. yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's protected by, I believe, the First Amendment. It's protected to like make commentary and use archive footage. But the standards are quite high. There's a great guide published by American University's law school about how fair use actually works. Hmm. I've followed the uh, H3, H3 or the H3 podcast, them, them getting in trouble mm-hmm. with fair use and having court cases about it and having their community all up in arms about it. And then, you know, continuing to battle over it, I think, in, in, in recent times that I haven't been following. I think fair, with AI emerging, fair use is going to become a huge opportunity for like a young attorney. If you know anybody who's like starting law school right now, tell them to pay attention in their IP classes and become fair use attorneys. Because I think it's going to be a huge issue in the next hmm. 30 to 50 Interesting years. AI piece, yeah. Yeah, lawyers in general might struggle with a lot of AI replacement as well. So maybe there's a one piece yeah. of, of lawyering to, yeah, one piece, to focus uh, you on. Know, I, Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's, it's an interesting space. You know, you're making commentary, you are telling a story, and you can use these assets in a very particular way. Hmm. And, and, you know, what is that standard of how you can borrow assets? And it seemed like, I guess when I mentioned that H3H3 story was, uh, one of the big problems was someone could sue you, and then you have to go through this big court process of proving that you used it right. Even like in their case, they were yes. making commentary on some piece of thing and it was a, it was a work of commentary. Sorry. But you can still get sued. Yeah, exactly. So before you broadcast on TV, you're going to want to get E&O, errors and omissions insurance. And most of them won't issue the policy in the nonfiction world unless you have a letter certifying that you ran your fair use case by a fair use attorney. Mm-hmm. And I happen to have be a pro bono client of one of the best fair use attorneys in the world. And he happens to be particularly passionate about the Dominican American community. And he loved my film. And yeah, I, 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 having that letter is sort of my certification that like, it would be really hard to sue. Yeah. When you have that letter in hand, it's like, I ran this by an attorney who specializes in this. And you also want to go and check out case law. You want to check out a whole bunch of different things. So. Maybe this is one of the big differences between broadcast and YouTube and, and how fair use yeah. works across them is like broadcast has already covered it. They've, they've make you go through a process and you can, you can oh, bet there's a letter this somewhere that, so sue me. Oh yeah. I, I, I have a letter. I I'm bond. I'm bonded and insured. If someone makes a fair use claim against me and is successful, they can, I'm bonded and insured, I think for $5 million. Yeah. So they'd be hard pressed yeah. to be honest with you. My insurance company would probably be like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> yeah. That's good. You know? Backing for sure. Yeah. And I, and you're right. That's the part that the YouTuber community is missing. And, and traditionally you might could... expect YouTube to be the, or the people might want YouTube to be the backer, right. To be like, Oh, we're yeah. going to stand up for our people, but they have too much going on. And yeah, there's just, they have too no much one's figured on. it out yet. I mean, YouTube ha- having launched a pretty successful YouTube channel. I mean, they are, their job is to protect against that frankly, and they have great technology to protect against copyright violations. Yeah. So. Earlier, you 
on, you were mentioning the process of putting together your, your film and like how we yeah. talked about, you know, getting the equipment together. And then you, you kind of skipped over the point of you knew some people, you had a person who was going to help you film. And then you had some other people you used later on or that helped in the production phase or yeah. Tell me about how you found good partners and how that's been important to your processes or you know, how, how do, how do I go find great partners? A lot of that is like being out there and being in the industry and figuring out who you know. I knew a guy in New York who, a friend of a friend, and we worked together a couple times. I hired him when he was working, when I was working on like a pretty good cash gig and we just maintained a relationship and I liked his work and I said, I can't pay you even close to what you deserve, but if you have some free time, would you help me out with this project? And he was like, it's a story about his, his name's Greg McMahon. And he was like, it's a story about an Irish pub. I'm in. <laughs> so paid him well below what he deserved. But that's another thing. Like when you're doing a project like this, it's a passion project. If you're bringing people on, even if you pay them a little bit, like as cash comes in from grants or, you know, we did, I did a little bit of consulting loosely tangential to Coogan's way. And it, it's a long story, but I got some cash in, in flow, making sure that like, they share in the successes, not just the labor. So yeah, if I got like, you know, X, Y, Z amount of money from a grant, making sure that I'm giving some to those guys. And it was, you know, just sort of having that, having that sort of avenue, you know, looking at like the post-production guy, former student of mine, same thing, helped him, paid him when I could. And, but he was passionate about it. And, you know, another part of like that exchange process is I helped him find his first job out of college. And he was like, yeah, you helped me. I'll help you. And I've thrown work at both of those guys. A guy I collaborate with pretty much every project I've ever done writes a lot of my music. And like, he's a very successful, like muckety muck in the uh, advertising world now. But like, he's, he's written songs for every project I've ever done. And he was like, yeah, sure, man, just give me like a week. I'll, I'll stay up till three in the morning on Thursday and write it for <laughs> you. And like, it's those relationships and just cultivating that, that, that sort of like circle of trust. The other side of it is my students love working on my projects with me. So taking them to Capitol Hill to do an interview with me and having them help me with transcripts, having them help me with mapping out the story, having them help me with research. Students have this kind of luxury of time and disposition that they'll jump at the opportunity to help you. So all of those little things kind of add up and you, you accidentally end up building a great team and also not being afraid to like, I am friendly with someone who's an exec producer, but most of his career was spent in music supervision and I needed some catalog music. He hooked me up with a guy who has a very successful music catalog service, something I could have never afforded on my own. But using that guy's endorsement, he gave me a really sweetheart deal that I pay $500 once and have the license and can use the whole catalog because it was a special case. Yeah. So leveraging your network, being really outwardly kind to everyone you work with so that when you have these things come along, they don't remember you as that jerk who acted like a baby on set. They remember you as that nice guy who bought you a hamburger after we wrapped. You know what I mean? Just making sure that kindness, you lead with kindness. You develop a really great network of people who are going to go out of their way to help yeah. you. And then I will not lie, like Coogan's way, leverage the heck out of the, the goodwill that the bar had. Yeah. Yeah. And were you asking um, and, for help a lot or was it more, you know, being um, presented to it, you? It was more, yeah, it was more, hey, I'm doing this story. I'm doing it low budget. Do you have XYZ resource? And people would be like, oh yeah, I'll just, I'll just help you out. <laughs> you know, and like, 
you know, one of the lawyers that we used on this, and this is a very funny story. I'm very close friends with one of my exes and we remained close friends. Like we didn't work as a couple, but why would we throw away our friendship? She works in intellectual property law. She helped me with the case review for this. So it's like, you never know where like leading with kindness will, will help you assemble that team and just making sure that you compensate people when you can on a passion project. That that's the most important thing. And, you know, like I said, Steve and Greg should have been paid way more than I paid them. But as I got money in, they got money yeah. in. Well, thanks a ton for uh, spending your time with me as well today as, as, it, oh, as, the, yeah, no, as well, the asking yeah. for help goes. Oh, no, for me, this is an opportunity for promotion. Maybe some people will watch this and want to go watch my film. Yeah, absolutely. If you have any good ways to to send them to my, your website or anything that will, you know, you know yeah, give, me, give me some links. We'll, we'll put it. Yeah, I'll send you some links. The big one is it's Vimeo on demand right yeah. now and Coogan's way. All right. We'll have that definitely down there put it on the screen and all that stuff. Go check it out. It's a fun, about an hour long show to watch and it was good stuff. I have yeah. some friends that really love documentaries, so I'm sure, sure you get a couple. Oh man. I'd love that. Thanks so much. Yeah. And the other piece you mentioned was, it was your ex. That, that's a <laughs> decent lead into how your love life has gone and you ended up with a, with a son I, and how, oh, <laughs> you yeah. know, tell me about the, tell uh, me what's going on in your life. Yeah. So I came to DC with like these, you know, to ride out the proverbial recession and, and, you know, the, there was work here and particularly with a, a guy like me doing what I do, there was work here and, you know, I dated and whatnot. I dated in New York. I had short term relationships, longer term relationships. But had a little bit of heartbreak, summer 2010, was really confused about where I wanted one relationship to go. And then another relationship came along and it was terrible. And I, I, I just sort of hit the reset button, went to an Orioles game with a buddy of mine, had a little bit too much to drink. We ended up at a bar at like one in the morning. Cute redheaded girl was sitting in the booth, asked me if I was balding or if I shaved my head. <laughs> and fast forward... Oh gosh, what are we at? Uh, 13 years later, she's my wife and we have a son. So, uh, wow, you actually met yeah, in a bar. It actually can happen. Yeah, I actually <laughs> met in a bar. An absolute dive on it's closed now, a dive on Connecticut Avenue and right near the DuPont neighborhood. And it worked out really, really well. And we, we get each other and we have, I'm very proud of, we communicate well. She's an assistant principal at an elementary school and is very, very successful and dynamic and just, you know, we complement each other really yeah, well. So that's what I was going to ask is like, what do you think? What do you think is good about her that matches well with you? I think we both lead with kindness in terms of how we approach our careers and our lives. We, you know, there's nothing I love more in the world than just talking to her. <laughs> we'll talk about everything from the latest Ted Lasso episode to, you know, strategizing a kindergarten for our son and like all of those things and planning vacations and things like that. I, I just found a really good partner to to sort of go through all of that with and i was not like the like outwardly like oh i want to have kids i want to have kids i I, it actually took a little convincing but now i I love being a dad and my son is he's five years old now which is an awesome age it's a great age i was terrified when he was a baby because i never really interacted with a baby before And I thought I was going to break him, but now like he, he's just, he's got this big personality and he, he, he's fun to hang out with. He's funny. He's genuinely funny and quirky. And, you know, you sometimes have discussions that I'm the morning parent because my wife leaves her work much Mm. earlier in the morning. And the number of times I said, so where precisely did you leave your shoes (laughs) or like, you know, 
the hustle of the morning. But uh, yeah, so I, I feel very blessed in that in that regard to have just a really good, stable, supportive family environment. Yeah. What is being a a teacher, you know, a professor, and and learning that career uh, taught you about raising your kid, and and then vice versa, right? Or what is, what is <laughs> raising your kid taught you about going back to school and oh, teaching gosh. them better? Well, I, I think the best answer to this is, you know, my wife was a former classroom teacher and she became, got onto the data side of education and then became an assistant principal. And I think this poor kid, like he's getting teachered from every direction yeah. or professored from every direction. The poor kid is just <laughs> inundated with education, uh, probably to a traumatic extent. So what has it taught me in, in terms of being a parent? Patience, patience more than anything. And, you know not losing your cool over the little stuff. And I still need to to work on that a little bit. You said, you know, the not crying over spilled milk. And I don't mean proverbially, I mean, literally <laughs> spilled milk. Let's not cry about that. Let's move on. Let's, you know, take, take things one at a time. So, and I, I think that the, the most apropos or important thing I, I heard about parenting was like, the days feel like years and the years feel like days. Because I still think of him as this little baby who just arrived, but he's five. Yeah. And, but, you know, when he was little, some of those days were real long. Um, and, you know, why are you crying? And I can't figure it out. And like, but yeah, five is a fun age. And he's, he was born in October. So he actually has to, he's going to be going into kindergarten this year. He's been going to a very interesting Montessori school where they lump together the three, fours and five. So he's one of the big kids now, but next year he's going to a public kindergarten and I, I can't wait to see the world through his yeah. eyes. Will he be the young um, one or the old one then? How does that? He'll be okay. the old one. So yeah, he'll be turning six in October. So, but uh, he's excited and like, he talks about kindergarten. Like I think the way you and I talked about like going to college, <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm so excited. Wow, for kindergarten, he knows about know? it. He's understands. Yeah. It could be sad about leaving his oh, yeah. old school. Sometimes you'd, you'd think that would be the way it'd go, right? I, I think I think there's too much excitement to yeah. be sad. You know, it, it's funny. He's an only child and he's going to be an only child. We're in the one child camp, but you know, I, I grew up one of three and then my parents had two wards. So technically one oh, wow. of five and it was like, there was a lot of kids around. So he, he gets a lot of attention. The, the, there might be a like conversation, like maybe in his tween or teen years of like, you know, Okay, we got to get better at sharing. We got to get better at like not occupying someone's attention the entire time. But we'll, we'll deal with it. We'll cross that bridge when yeah. we get to it. Yeah, start early. I suppose yeah. is probably the best advice. Is uh, teach from the beginning. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you'll be all right. It's funny. I never really picture myself as like your prototypical family man. And like, you know, you go to these parenting events, and people are like, "Oh, what do you do?" I'm like, "I'm a documentarian and a professor." They're like, "I've never heard that before," and I'm like. Yeah, that's, you know, so it's, it's fun. You know, I, you have a, I have a fairly different job than most of my son's friends' yeah. parents. So. What do you hope for in your son's life? How do you line <laughs> that up with your own goals? Like your, your own uh, kind of sense of success for what's been success for Glenn in his life or Austin in his life? What is your kid's life going to look like? Wow. And that, that, that's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think I, like a lot of people, I, I have the woulda, coulda, shouldas and I could have gone down this avenue. I could have gone down that avenue or what would my life have been like if I had pursued my path? I have a particular passion for aviation. Like what if I had become a commercial airline? Yeah, pilot? you could have, right? For sure. Um, yeah. I've gone into the military or something of that. And my dad was in the military and you know, I, that was always fascinating to me. Like I think everybody plays that woulda, shoulda, coulda game 
but ultimately I, I think I found what I'm good at or, or perhaps meant to do. And that is teaching at the college level. I love the kids at that age. I, I shouldn't say kids, the young adults at that age. I love, you know, getting them excited about something that could be a career. So ultimately I did find where I belong. Now, do I wish professors in this country were paid slightly more? Absolutely. But, you know, and I still get to do the storytelling that's important to me. The other side of the coin being, you know, what are my hopes for him is that he finds something that he's passionate about and doesn't just have that sort of go to school, graduate, get a job, start a family, do that for 60 years and die. Like, sounds awful. I want him to find something he's passionate about and excited yeah. about. If that's a creative field, that's awesome. If that's a scientific field, that's awesome. If it's being a teacher, that's awesome. Whatever it is that, that he's passionate about, you know, do what you love and life's a good place that's to be. good advice. How, any stories yeah. of how you've tried to engender that in him and now or how to, you know, how you've tried to help him express that, those desires now? We let him explore a lot the things that he's interested in. So, you know, like every little kid, he's, he's gone through a dinosaur phase and we let him learn all about dinosaurs. Right now he's obsessed with numbers and math and counting. And my wife's already teaching him square roots. And I'm like, I didn't know square root. I, I barely know square roots now, <laughs> but like, you know, so right. he, he, you know, yeah, just get, getting him, letting him be excited about things loves animals so we're going on like a little mini jaunt to florida mini vacation next month and we're gonna go to sea world so he can see animals up close you know what i mean like we go to the zoo a lot because he loves animals and you know if that turns him into a veterinarian if that turns him into whatever it is you think back of what you were excited about when you were five or six and you know, maybe that turns into something, maybe it doesn't. I, I tell everybody I wanted to be an animator, but around the seventh grade, I realized I couldn't draw. <laughs> but what I do for a living is not that far from animation. It's telling stories on yeah. film. So. Just using a camera to make the pictures instead of your hand, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, just just letting them be excited about things, I think is the important thing. In high school, I was probably a little bit too obsessed with trying to turn myself into a better athlete than I actually was, oh, yeah? <laughs> but yeah, but I, I, I sort of look back with a little bit of regret that like I could have done more and different and interesting things if I hadn't been, you know, clinically exhausted from running 40, 50, 60 miles uh -huh. a week. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. I I'm just thinking back. I look at that time in high school and, you know, was decently successful running, but I'm like, man, I could have spent more time doing some upper body work or some, you know, if yeah. I, if I'd eaten better or like all the things you maybe learn later on in life or that now are maybe more standard practice. I don't know how much high school kids are really following it. Probably at the elite levels, they're, they're following the same things that all the professional athletes have learned and talked about now. Yeah. I don't want to race walk or anything anymore. I, I do indoor rowing and kayaking and I was like, Oh my gosh, I have shoulders and a chest. You can probably see I'm a little thicker than I used <laughs> to be like, uh, and I built up my upper body and I'm like, man, I wish I was like this in high school, sophomore year, which was probably my best year running cross country. I was like five, nine, 126 pounds. And I was like, man, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I had this body in me. Maybe I should have went to the gym every once in a while instead of just running, running the three, six course out on Wells road. But yeah, you know. yeah, it's amazing how much our bodies change that way over time and how, yeah. how they shift from that. Uh, yeah, those high school times to to adult times for sure.
Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I'm bigger than the guys who played high school football for Northport now. <laughs> and I, I think I mentioned like I had a late growth spurt. So I was still growing in college and like, it, which was insane. But when I stopped running, I started growing again. So <laughs> like little five, nine skinny Glenn, I by halfway through college, I was like six, one. And I'm like, all right, this feels more yeah. like me. Do you think so. it was just like a like a personal kind of hormonal type thing of, of just your, your genetics? <laughs> or do you think it was something about the running and walking you were doing, the intense exercise was slowing you down? I, if I think I'm being brutally honest, I think I did too much and sort of slowed mm. down how fast I was supposed to grow. Because I'm so, out of my siblings and my parents and extended family, I'm still on the shorter end. Mm. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, my brother Wayne, who passed away, he, he was about 6'2". My other brother's about 6'2". My dad... Before, you know, he's getting old and shrinking, but <laughs> before that was yeah, always bigger. So, yeah, I think I would have even been a, a little bit taller, bigger, just too much running. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry to hear about your brother, too. That must have been really challenging. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. yeah it was uh, still hard 11 years later, but it's uh, still hard. Yeah, so. I've been lucky that way that all my close relatives are, are still around, and I, but I dread it all the time or I, I worry about it. I don't know how you... Yeah. It's it's hard, and it's it was really hard on my folks, but yeah, we've worked at it. And the most important thing, and you know, I was with my wife when that happened. We were we weren't married yet, but like you know, having someone to talk that stuff out with is is the yeah. best. And you know, being you know, being mindful of your emotions gets you through a lot of hard things. Yeah, so. yeah. good job, or keep it up. Good remembrance. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's all the main questions I got. Should we wrap it all up right. here? What do you think? Ian, you got it. You got a knack for this, man. You, you, you got, you got me comfortable and I, and you know, it helps that I know you, but you got me comfortable and you got me rambling. So good <laughs> well, thanks a ton for chatting. I know you got your family upstairs and some, some good week weekend cleanup work to get back to probably. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm not looking for, I'm hoping they made progress while I, while I was, yeah, maybe there. it's lunchtime almost. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a little, uh, you know, a, a break time, but it's really good to see you, man. And, uh, you know, I, I know I was a subject here, but, uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll have a informal um, Zoom happy hour and I'd love to hear about That'd your family. Oh, yeah. And your yeah, so awesome. people told me I need to do like a reverse, or Brad was saying I should do a reverse interview or uh, or wow. do something, right? That I, my wife wants me to yeah, always talk Brad's more on these things. So maybe I'll call you up to interview me sometime. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Like I said, when I went down to interview Brad for that segment that I did, I was just like, man, it's just cool to catch up with you. Yeah. And like, I know I'm doing a subject, but like, you know, this is a weird statement, but I've actually read some things about this. It's very hard for a particularly post 35 year old men to make new mm. friends. So it's pretty cool to connect with yeah. old friends. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's one of my reasons for doing this, right? Is I've met so many interesting people across my life and uh, yeah, I just want to catch back up with them or see how everybody's been doing. So yeah, the last time I saw you, if you would have told me that like Glenn, I'm Ian from the future. You're going to make movies. <laughs> you're going to live in, and be a journalist and uh, you're going to be a professor. I'd been like, Ian, you got to lay off the yeah. Jokes, man. Yeah, I never so. would have guessed where, where, where <laughs> you've done today. That's great. Well, congrats. <laughs> well, really, lots of luck with the podcast. You got a knack for this. Keep Thanks. it up, man. Thanks a lot, Glenn. Awesome. See you, <laughs> See you again soon. Yeah, Bye. man. That's it for today. Thanks a ton for listening. And don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you learned something and I'll see you next time, friends.